Hello and welcome to Socialism, the weekly Marxist analysis podcast from the Socialist Party. Friday the 16th of August 2019 is the 200th anniversary of the Peterloo Massacre. Armed forces charged a peaceful mass protest demanding political representation in the fight for bread, jobs and living pay. This bloody response to workers' political organisation in 1819 laid bare the truth that the state is not a neutral body representing the best interests of all classes. It has many lessons for today about the roots of capitalism in Britain and of course the length the capitalist state will go to when faced with a political crisis. And stay listening at the end for our new segment on the latest workers' struggles and what socialists are fighting for in response to recent national events. Thanks very much for that introduction. James Ivans here from the Socialist Newspaper Editor's Department and we're here today speaking with the Socialist Party's Kevin Parslow, who's also the Secretary of General Union Unite's LE1228 branch. Hello, Kevin. Hi, James. Kevin, can you briefly outline, for those of us who weren't around 200 years ago, what was the Peterloo Massacre? The Peterloo Massacre was the murder of 18 workers and members of their families, and the injuries of hundreds of others who were attending a demonstration in Manchester, in St Peter's Fields, to organise for political change. Mm. They were fighting for more democratic parliaments, for the rightful election of MPs for all males at that time, although some women were campaigning also for female suffrage. Sure. But it was a massive demonstration of tens of thousands, probably representing one in eight of the entire population of what is now Greater Manchester. Okay. So it was a huge demonstration, mainly of industrial workers. Now, this bloody event in British history isn't widely taught in schools. You could be forgiven for thinking that society, at least in this country, evolved gradually, peacefully, to where we are today. Mike Lee, in talking about his film Peterloo last year, Mm -hmm. made the point that he lived in and was brought up in Salford and wasn't even mentioned in schools, Mm. the Peterloo massacre. If it was, it was very brief. And educational authorities who are linked to the ruling classes in society, don't want working class people to know the bloody history of the capitalist class, the ruling class in Britain, Mm -hmm. and the fact that that class feared workers when they took to the streets and were mobilised for a political programme. And what was it that inspired workers to mobilise in this mass demonstration? There have been demonstrations before, and some big ones, in London, Manchester as well, the Blanketeers, only two years previously. The Blanketeers, who were they? The Blanketeers were groups of weavers who were unemployed, they took a blanket, they hoped to march to London Mm -hmm. and present a petition to the Prince Regent. They were stopped, most of them were stopped by the time they got to Stockport, which is only eight miles down the road. Some of them didn't even get out of Manchester. Right. So there have been protests before. This one came at a time of intense hardship for working class people. They were now in the second recession since the end of the Napoleonic Wars in June 1815. So things were tough and it was hunger, it was unemployment, lack of decent housing and so on that inspired them to come out because they felt that political change was needed to improve their lives. And these wars with France, did these have any impact on the situation? Were they part of the cause? In the end of the war, there was obviously a demobilisation of a lot of young men in uniform who served in either the Navy or the Army. Mm-hmm. And there were no jobs to come back to, Okay, particularly in some of the trades that had helped to supply the war, the, the textile industry, 
armaments and so on. Obviously, those industries were not so not so needed. They didn't need the products anymore. So there wasn't the jobs there. So hundreds of thousands came back and a very few jobs. So that added to the poverty. You may have seen recently that wage growth in Britain today is as low as it was during the Napoleonic period. Okay. And that is how bad the situation was, given that mm. we know that wage settlements recently have been so low. So it was an intense period of poverty. And even some mass meetings considered the demand for state-sponsored mass emigration to Australia, really? Americas, and so on. Yeah. However, in 1819 itself, many of these mass meetings, which were open-air gatherings, normally outside or just inside town environs, were more political. They wanted not just to petition. In fact, many thought petitioning was pointless because the Prince Regent and the Tory government just binned the petitions in reality. Right, right. But they felt that mass action was needed. They didn't know very much more other than more protests and election of, of MPs they thought might be more favourable, but it was an instinctive feeling that they needed a better life. How did workers and poor people respond to this dire situation then, where the powers that be were not responding to their needs? There were protests. Mm-hmm. In London, in a place called Sparfield, which is in Clerkenwell, there were two protests at the end of 1816, mm-hmm. which some of the demonstrators took off and tried to attack government buildings. Mm-hmm. That was put down by the authorities. I mentioned the Blanketeers. Mm-hmm. And we also saw, and it's in the copy of the Socialists from a couple of years back, the Pentridge Rising. Okay. Workers in Nottinghamshire were very angry. They were experiencing poverty and a lack of opportunity. They were incited by an agent provocateur, but they rose against the authorities and it was put down. So there were a number of events, but then in 1818, there was a bit of an upturn in industry. In the Manchester and Lancashire area, there were strikes of weavers and spinners. Okay. Just a little uptick and saw that they thought their wages stopped falling and they would fight for a bit more. Now, most of the strikes didn't win very much, if anything at all. And trade unions then were not the stable organisations that we have today. They were very, they would shoot up at times when they were doing something, able to fight, and then would fall back into a handful in times of recession and difficulties and so on. So that was defeated, and often when workers are defeated on the industrial field, they turn to the political field, and that's when we see the big demonstrations happening in 1819, which culminated in Peterloo on the 16th of August, 1819. So the workers didn't win as much as they needed then from this strike wave in 1818. What kind of political reforms did this new movement demand? Mainly led by middle-class radicals. Henry Hunt, Orator Hunt, who spoke at Peterloo... And was sorry, a what do you mean by radicals? By radicals, I mean reformers. They were known as radicals. Some were even known as Jacobins. It was like mm. the term Bolshevik was used in the 20th century. Jacobins were the leading, most revolutionary part of the... French Revolution in the 1790s, and still, 20-odd years later, you have radicals called Jacobins, mm-hmm. but certainly they were mainly for parliamentary reform. Okay. They, were, they felt that they'd been excluded from some of the benefits of the growing capitalist society, which was largely in the control of an alliance between the landowners, the financiers, and the biggest sections of the manufacturing classes, big industrialists. So these middle-class radicals, they are after a way for them to, what, compete more with the big capitalists? Get a share of the spoils, I think. They felt they were excluded from the power, if you like, and sharing the power. In the 17th century, we saw the English Civil War, 
Parliament was led by Cromwell against the monarchy. Mm-hmm. And you have, in that civil war, the growth of egalitarian movements like the Levellers fighting for a more equal society. So they, uh, they were fighting under Cromwell's army, were they? They were, they were. And they were fighting with Parliament, but for their own issues as well, and for their own demands, more equal land. Which is different to what Cromwell was fighting for. He was fighting for the business interests in English society to yeah. come to power through Parliament. He was, that's right. So there were competing interests in that which Cromwell crushed after the defeat of the monarchy, Okay, and they were crushed after that. Then you see the Commonwealth was Cromwell's government, a republic, but when that collapsed in 1660, the Stuart monarchy was restored. But things couldn't go back to where they were completely. When James II came to the throne, he tried to take reactionary measures and move on Parliament. But Parliament fought back. And we have what's called the Glorious Revolution. And what was glorious about it was it was, it was the opportunity. They overthrew James II. But they instituted the basis, the infrastructure for modern capitalism today. They founded the Bank of England. They regulated the stock exchange. They accelerated the pace of enclosures, which threw many peasants off the land and and created more and more big landowners. That was the society that the middle class radicals about a century later wanted to be part of. They wanted to get some of the opportunities. So the power in society had passed from the old feudal aristocracy, the landowners mainly, to the new business interests in alliance with a section of the old landowners. The radicals wanted to take part in this new society where business owners could make a lot of money. But what about the workers and poor people who formed the mass of these demonstrations? Were they after the same things? They were after the basics in life. They were after a job with decent pay, decent shelter. If you look at some of the places, many workers lived in cellars in some of these towns, like Stockport. Really? And crammed into cellars, you know, many into a room. It was a horrific situation. You have also the development of outworking in the 18th century of handloom weavers. So what's outworking? Where work is taken to the worker's home Mm. and a loom is constructed. It's in the main room of the house, so it takes up the entire house in effect. And they sleep and they work with the loom. And it's peace rate, and in good times it's fairly well paid, but in bad times there's no pay at all. Mm. So it's a very precarious existence. It's a development of capitalist manufacture. Later on, they hadn't taken over completely by 1819, Mm -hmm. but you do see the beginnings of factory manufacture of textiles. There are factories already in Manchester at that time. Most of the, however, the demonstrators were the handloom weavers who were feeling the pinch more specially than perhaps the factory workers who wouldn't have had the chance in the main to have left work anyway at that time. So more than the right to establish their own kind of small business interests, they were after economic demands along the lines of decent pay, yeah, decent housing, this That's kind right. of thing. That's right. The same things which workers struggle for today. So the working class wasn't all concentrated in big collective workplaces in the way that you might expect to see later on in capitalist society in the way that you would expect to see in most countries today. But the working class today is changing again, isn't it? And there are changes throughout the history of the working class. Is there something we can learn from that? Yes, the workers who were affected were probably the most radical. And I include in that not just the handloom weavers whose fortunes varied from the amount of work they got and the pay they got for that work, but also sections of workers who were gone through long apprenticeships, very, very well trained, almost like the old guild craft industries, mm-hmm. tailors, any sort of metal worker, almost self-employed, might have their own journeymen 
and apprentices and so on. Underneath them. Underneath them. were very small scale. Mm-hmm. Those are being affected by the move to manufacturing industry, the factory system. Mm-hmm. And they also were very prominent in the movement. But it's part of the change of the working class from workers working individually, out working in cottage industries and so on, mm-hmm. to a proletariat, as it's known, where hundreds, if not thousands, gather together in one workplace under the capitalist management. Like we see today happening with, for example, the Amazon warehouses, which are propping up all over the place. And there you have, and we've seen in recent years, the return to a more precarious form of employment. Many of the Amazon or other warehouse workers will be on zero-hour contracts. Mm. You get work or you don't. And it's not dissimilar from the situation in the 19th century, beginning of the 19th century, where those conditions were also prevalent. So demands would have arisen out of this situation for secure working hours, for a better rate of pay that you could afford to live on, for decent housing conditions, just as are arising again today and really have never gone away under capitalism but are particularly poignant at this moment in time. How did the state react when this mass of people announced they were going to have a demonstration? The original demonstration was applied for on the 9th of August, the Monday before Peterloo actually took place. And it was also to elect a representative. Manchester at that time was a town of tens of thousands of people, but had no MPs of its own. Mm. Whereas you had what were called rotten boroughs, places like Old Serum in Wiltshire, which had two MPs and it was a hilltop. Or <laughs> Dunwich in Suffolk, yeah. which was falling into the sea, with 11 electors. They elected two MPs. Manchester had none of its own. Any electors who qualified through their landed and property interests would have to go to an election in Lancaster, 50 miles away, to vote for an MP. And that was considered, one, it was 5% of the population, all male. They were the only ones who could vote. Because they had... The landed property. Okay. And secondly, they were not the representatives of working class people. Sure. And they were picked, basically, by the aristocracy, the gentry... And they're all in the hands and the pockets of those people. So often the sons of lords and dukes and whatever would serve in the House of Commons, so-called. <laughs> you know, so it was, it was not a representative of the population as a whole. So the middle class radicals applied to the authorities to be allowed to hold a demonstration. They did. And what uh, did the authorities say? Well, because it, it raised the question of electing a representative, it was considered illegal because only the Prince Regent had the right to call an election. So they banned it. The magistrates were the power that be in Manchester at that time. So this demonstration had the idea that it was going to elect a Member of Parliament? That was the original title of the meeting, as it was called, that they would elect a representative for them to go to London to represent them. In Parliament? He wouldn't been allowed to go to Parliament, sure. sit in Parliament, but he would be there. It was somewhat symbolic, but it would have been a reflection of the feelings. However, it was banned. So they reapplied and changed the word into to consider the means to have representation in Parliament, something like that. Be a lot vaguer. And it wasn't banned at that time. However, Home Secretary Lord Sismus had previously suggested that the authorities in Manchester could, if necessary, forcibly break up the demonstration. Later on, he backtracked a bit, but by then, the magistrates, fearful of what might happen, they feared revolution in reality. Okay decided on a course of action which would be to forcibly break up the demonstration. And is this what happened at the mass meeting? 
So tens of thousands come in from all over what is now the Greater Manchester and further in Lancashire and Cheshire. There are delegations, even Yorkshire, coming over to this big meeting. Mm-hmm. And they're assembled. And at one fifteen, Henry Hunt, the main attraction, begins to speak. And he so he's said, a radical reformer. He's a radical reformer. He said no more than two sentences when the special constables, first of all, clear a path. And then the yeomanries of Manchester and Salford and Cheshire come in and begin the slaughter of the demonstrators. So hang on, what's the yeomanry? The yeomanry were a part-time force, auxiliaries to the main armed forces. Okay. So they were made up of small business people, mainly innkeepers, tanked up with the products of their hostelries. They were drunk. They were drunk and indiscriminately attacked the crowd. And as I said, 18 people were killed, not all on, on the field. Okay. Later on, the district of Ancoats rose up in the evening and the last fatality took place there, but most on them there. And probably six to 700 injuries as well. So the state had dramatically made its point that it didn't want mass meetings of this character, which were going to start asking questions about political representation of classes other than the wealthy rulers in society. Did either side leave matters there? Did the radicals leave it there? Did the poor and working masses leave it there? And did the capitalist state leave it at that point? They feared a revolution, so they wanted to stop the revolution. It wasn't so much the middle-class radicals that they were worried about, but the forces that they were engendering. Rather like today, you have Jeremy Corbyn, and they fear Corbyn, the capitalist class, being prime minister because of the people who will be behind him. Working-class people, young people demanding better jobs better pay, housing. It's a bit like that today. What happened after Peterloo, there were protests, there were risings in places around Manchester, Huddersfield, Burnley, there were uprisings that took place. There were mass meetings. There was one of 30,000 in London in protest and also in Newcastle Mm -hmm. and elsewhere. Fearful of a revolution, as I said, they brought in what called the Six Acts. And these were anti-democratic acts of parliament which restricted the right to meet Already, you couldn't organise a national political party. That would have been banned. There were further restrictions on the numbers you could attend a meeting. Mm. Habeas corpus was suspended. All sorts of... So anti- habeas corpus is the... Habeas corpus is when somebody is arrested and a lawyer or whoever applies for that prisoner to be presented to a court. So they can't just be kept without charge. So it was an introduction of indefinite imprisonment Okay. without charge. There was restrictions on the press as well. Mm. Already, the vast majority of the cost of a newspaper was tax. There were further restrictions on what that meant. So the radical newspaper, the Manchester Observer, come under severe financial and political restraints. It eventually collapsed and many of its journalists went over to form what is now the Guardian, the Manchester Guardian. (laughs) Okay. And today, as then, I suppose it represents the middle class. It did at that time, from its earlier start. However, it soon gained a reputation as being the mouthpiece for the big manufacturers in Manchester. Okay. Yeah. And certainly today you could argue that its editorial line makes it really the house newsletter of Blairism more than even a middle-class radical that's, newspaper. That's right. But in its initial form, it was there to reflect the concerns of the radicals in Manchester over political reform. Now, the state feared revolution. It feared a mass organisation, a political party of the workers and poor, and it feared them taking up arms and marching against it, just as the capitalist class itself had done in a previous period, against the old feudal aristocracy. Was it right to fear that? There was certainly a big movement that if it hadn't been prevented, there could have been further meetings, demonstrations like that. 
there was probably the worry that on a national scale there would be movements of workers and the poor to get a better life. There was not only no attempt to alleviate the conditions, but actually the policy of the government was to make it worse. They brought in the Corn Laws, for example, which raised the price of bread okay. drastically. So it was even a piece of bread was costing a lot more than it used to at a time of falling wages. It was extreme poverty. So they feared it. And as I said, after Peterloo, there were big demonstrations, but it wasn't just that. There was Thistlewood, who I mentioned earlier, who was arrested after the Spa Fields demonstrations in London 1816, mm-hmm. then led what was called the Cato Street Conspiracy, where they attempted to assassinate the cabinet. Right, Again, okay. another spy got them arrested as well. But you also see mass movements developing in central Scotland. It's called the Radical War at the beginning of April 1820. Okay. Where there's an uprising, it's strikes, it's protests and so on, which is only suppressed after eight days of struggle. It still happened, but what you see after Peterloo is the middle-class radical split. Some of them want to continue with more of what we might call direct action today, mm-hmm. continuing to struggle. But another section fears not just the violence of the state, mm-hmm. but also the mass movement of workers that has developed. And so they become more passive and move away from their most radical reforms. So from Peterloo onwards, I would argue that the biggest motivating force for political change was the working class. I think mm-hmm. that's a big turning point. There's a very brief period of the Combination Acts which prevented trade unions being formed. Within a year, in the mid-1820s, they're reintroduced because mushrooming of trade union branches of organisations and so on. But you do seem to see more and more strike action and more political action as well. By the mid-1830s, there's the development of independent organisations which lead to the formation of the Chartists in 1838. The Chartists? The first working class party in the world. They have a big political reform programme which is not dissimilar to that of the Radicals in 1819 but they link it to social and economic points as well to benefit working class people. So you could see the kinds of socialist political party in a movement like that? That would certainly be the fear. When the ruling classes talked about Jacobinism they weren't just talking about parliamentary change but they're actually talking about the mass movement of lower classes in society against their rule and that they would take it further to fight for better conditions better pay decent housing those sort of things and in fact of course in Newport the Chartists led an armed uprising which sadly failed was put down by the capitalists in 1831 yeah yeah and then following on from that you have the development of early communist ideas, Marx and Engels write the Communist Manifesto in 1847, there's a wave of revolutions throughout Europe in 1848, and you can see the beginnings of all of this, the trade unions, the first workers' political party, the Chartists, and the seeds of it are all back there in the demonstration at Peterloo and the massacre by the state. Now, this was two centuries ago, however, so a lot of people might be asking, look, how does this compare to the situation today? We don't have Drunken yeomanry were being sent in with sabres. We don't have uprisings being led by the Chartists. Can we learn any lessons from a time which might on the surface seem so different? It's less than a century ago when auxiliary fascists were being organised to smash workers' organisations. I'm not saying that fascism is on the cars today, but capitalism will organise in the way it sees best to defend its interests. And we've seen in a number of countries where they put down movements you see today in Sudan and and so on, the use of auxiliaries and special forces Mm. to put down workers' movements, that's still done today. So I think that, first of all, we have to be aware of what the capitalists 
will do to defend their interests. Sure. That it also means that we have to, as a working class, elect our own leaders who will represent us and fight for our interests and not people who put themselves at the head of a movement who only have their own interests to fight for. We have to have a programme now in this day and age which wasn't fully developed in 1819, obviously, sure. a socialist plan, and that would mean taking on nationalisation of the economy, uh, building houses of decent pay, which would pay for everything that we need. And that's a programme which perhaps the working class hadn't developed at that stage. It was still, as we said earlier, a class in transition, a class in development. It was coming out of the countryside, wasn't it? A lot of it was coming drawn out, from the old peasantry. Drawn from the old peasantry, coming into the factories and going into big groups of workers. And of course then in the next century you see development of whole new sections of the working class. No railway workers in 1819. True. But in 1911 there's hundreds of thousands go out and strike in Britain. So they develop as a force very quickly and in a very militant fashion over the next century. And of course today we have the Militant Transport Workers Union, the RMT, which when it enters serious dispute with the management of Transport for London, for example, can shut the city down. It can. They still have, even though they're vastly reduced numbers from, say, 1911, they still have enormous power to cause the capitalist class enormous disruption to their system. It's an important power that can be used for wages, but also in a potentially more volatile situation in terms of big strikes and even a general strike, all workers, all trades. And of course, the actual exact numbers of the working class aren't as important as the role which they play in production. The small number of transport workers in London can shut down the city if they want to. They can. That was the power that the authorities in Manchester feared, that they might take control of Manchester and institute revolution. I don't think most workers felt that, but for the ruling class, that was their worry, that they would lose their power. And we can see that prescience today as well, with the anti-trade union laws, which were passed first of all by the Tories under Margaret Thatcher, and then added to by the Tories under David Cameron, which were never repealed by the new Labour government, which are some of the most restrictive laws against the right to organise in a union, the right to take strike action for workers, which exist anywhere in the free world, so-called. And at the same time, we have this new Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, who's presiding over a split Tory party, over a crisis-ridden parliament, in the midst of a national and international crisis of the economic system, hiring 20,000 extra policemen. Yeah, they know what's coming. There's been a period of relatively... Low numbers of strikes in days lost and actual numbers of strikes. But that doesn't mean to say there's not a mood of anger below. Mm -hmm. And they fear what could happen if that anger explodes. And the trade union leaders, many of whom are close friends of the ruling class, they don't act in the interest (laughs) of workers in the end. If they're overturned, if they can't hold the dam back, if you like, of workers' anger... Mm -hmm. They will turn to the laws and ultimately to their forces, the police forces, you say, but even the armed forces, as was used at Peterloo, to suppress workers' ambitions. So workers need to take seriously this question of what the state is and what role it will play in defence of the interests of big business and the very rich in order to be able to defend against it. They do, even on the basic things like defending demonstrations against far-right organisations. You need basic stewarding. You need protection for workers. In America and other countries, sometimes pickets are attacked with guns. Mm. You know, so workers need to take that seriously. But obviously they have to assess at each stage what is necessary and what the threat is and what the risk is and how they can protect themselves. 
the workers at Peterloo were in a sense very naive. They were told by Hunt they didn't want guns or any protection, no sticks. They brought their families, children mm. were there because they were not expecting violence. And Hunt misled one of the leaders, Sam Bamford at Middleton, who suggested that they should at least have sticks to protect themselves. And he said, no, we don't want any arms at all or any methods of defence. And it did leave the defenceless. So we have to be prepared at all stages for what might happen, evaluate the risk as is necessary, mm. and protect our demonstrations, our picket lines, our strikes by the methods that we need to. But of course, fundamentally, the fact that we need to take the question of defence of the workers' movement seriously, what that points to is the enormous power which it has to overthrow the existing order and to change society. It does. And right from Peterloo, that's been the fear of the ruling class in Britain and internationally, that workers will move and they will get rid of them, sweep them away and institute their own government. That's what happened in Russia just under a century after Peterloo because they had a programme that mobilised workers and they fought for it. They organised with committees to run society in a different way what the capitalist class would. Thanks very much, Kevin. So now it's the second edition of our new segment where we discuss some of the latest struggles taking place in workplaces and through the trade unions across the country, as well as updating you on some of the news developments and campaign developments which have taken place over the last few days. So we're welcoming back Scott Jones. Here's our industrial update. Scott, what's going on? Well, there's been a couple of strikes in the NHS and by other health workers. Okay. Recently, quite big ones. One is a group of health visitors, which are like nurses and midwives who visit homes, helping young families and children in Lincolnshire. So they've actually been transferred already previously from the NHS to the council. Okay. And they're facing a cut of up to £2,000 in pay. Really? Yeah, as well as de-skilling, which is going to have a big effect on the service they provide. Okay. And they've actually taken 14 days of action already, strike action against the Tory council. And it's probably, yeah, it's fantastic. It's probably the first ever strike by health visitors in Britain. And our members on the ground there, they say that they're very determined. Mm -hmm. They've been fighting for 14 days now. They're planning more protests. And as well as those workers, there's been NHS strike in Bradford by workers they were fighting backdoor privatisation. What does that mean? By that, I mean they're being transferred to another bit of jargon, what's called a wholly owned subsidiary. But it's basically taking them out of the NHS and a step towards further privatisation. So this is a separate company which is owned by the NHS Trust which could then be sold off. That's correct, yeah. So the strike action by workers in Mid-Yorkshire Trust, Mm -hmm. so nearby last year, defeated a similar move already. Mm -hmm. These workers taking strike action are hopefully going to do the same. And what we're calling for in these disputes is saying that the TUC, which of course is meeting in September, and the health unions involved, they should draw up a plan really to bring all these workers together as well as other NHS staff Mm -hmm. with marches and strikes to demand an end to all these attacks, these privatisations, and to call for a general election so we can fight to save the NHS. What else has been happening? Hasn't there been a ballot in your union, Equity? That's right. So I'm a member of a couple of trade unions, but one of them is Equity, which is the Performing Arts Workers Union. And the union is negotiating, once again, its pay deal with UK Theatre, which represents the managements of most of the larger publicly subsidised theatres. And there's a lot of good things about this new deal. That includes reductions in how many late hours actors and other performers are allowed to work during rehearsal. It includes increased pay for extra responsibilities and includes a new audition code of conduct, which would be very welcome to members. Unfortunately, however, 
The union is recommending the deal while it only includes a 2% pay increase over three years. And a lot of members in the union are upset about that because that's obviously a real terms pay cut. Of course. To not even get 1% a year, that's a bit of a weak deal for the union to be proposing at this point. So a lot of members will be voting to reject. We'll have to see what the outcome of that is. But really, going back to the management and saying the members aren't happy with this would be a start to put some kind of pressure on them. Definitely. What else has been happening then, Scott? Yeah, we should comment as well, as we record this, Wednesday the 14th of August, there's hundreds of workers marching in Leeds outside Asda headquarters. Wow. Workers for that company were basically being told, sign up to a deal which could leave you hundreds of pounds worse off. Mm-hmm. It could mean that you have to work weekends, which of course is a massive problem for parents, carers, and obviously people should have the right to decide whether they should work Sundays as well as bank holidays. Sure. And if they don't sign this contract, as they're saying, we're going to sack you in November. Really? Which is completely outrageous. Yeah. So this has meant the hundreds of workers organising the GMB trade union from across the country, right from Scotland to London and elsewhere, have marched in Leeds today to say, no, we're not going to accept this. That's great. Yeah. And if this march isn't enough, what should happen next? Well, we've already seen strikes and potentially upcoming strikes in loads of different retailers like Tesco, Sainsbury's, Wilco. There was even a walk-up by Matlam workers in Liverpool, for example. Really? Yeah, and this shows the anger that's there and the potential to fight back, the sort of action that Asda workers can take if Asda don't back down. So, James, you're going to tell us about some of the news and campaigns that we've featured in The Socialist and what's going on, what our party's involved in that's at right. the moment. Yes. What have you got for us? Well, first of all, Boris Johnson has promised £1.8 billion to improve 20 NHS hospitals. Now, the truth is that those 20 need at least £3.2 billion to do those upgrades, and to make any substantial improvement nationally would cost at least £33 billion, and these figures are from the Nuffield Trust, which is a healthcare think tank. So it's not enough, and meanwhile health workers are continuing to suffer staff shortages and wage stagnation, so this isn't news to anyone really, but obviously Mm -hmm. the super-rich don't want to pay for the National Health Service. So that's why Johnson isn't promising enough money. But they do want new markets to squeeze money out of us so the Tories will continue to privatise. Now, if Boris is saying the wallet's open, the healthcare unions ought to be saying, well, give us what's really needed and we will build for strikes if you don't give it to us. At the same time, health can't be in the hands of the plunderers like Richard Branson. So the Socialist Party says put it in public ownership, the whole lot, and have it run by elected committees of health workers, patients and the wider workers' movement, not the capitalists or Tory-appointed bureaucrats. This must have been Johnson's third spending announcement in as many days, isn't it? That's right, yeah. Can you tell there's a general election on the way? So he's also promised some spending on police and prisons, plus schools and elderly care. Now, each of these in their own way shows that big business fears the huge anger which there is at the moment among working-class and middle-class people after a decade of austerity, But workers know that the Tories will go on attacking us for profit, whatever they promise now. So the best way for Labour to answer this bait from Johnson is to implement a real anti-austerity programme now. Councils could start reversing all the cuts and privatisation in adult social care and education tomorrow using the reserves and borrowing powers which they have. And we've had a whole podcast a little while back, which you can listen to to hear more about how they can do that. They could also answer Johnson on knife crime by reinstating youth services and creating more well-paid jobs for kids to go into. And at the same time, Corbyn and MacDonald could instruct Labour councils from above to do this and pledge to underwrite the debts which they incur when they enter government. Thanks, James. In terms of the campaigns we've been involved in, wasn't there a far-right rally held in Oxford Circus on the 3rd of August? 
That's right, yeah. A small number of supporters of the racist demagogue who calls himself Tommy Robinson attempted a rally there. They weren't unopposed, by the way. Socialist Party members joined many other anti-racists on a counter-demonstration. I was there, as were many others. Now, we think the way to cut across the current small support for the far right is for the trade union movement, with its huge membership and huge authority and resources, to lead a fight against the conditions which breed racism. So that means fighting for jobs, homes and services for all. Socialist Party members have won various trade union branches and trade union conferences to this position already. And in fact, the TUC, at its last Congress, launched a Jobs, Homes, Not Racism campaign. But now the union leaderships have to take some action on it. And that means organising, first of all, the struggle to actually improve conditions. But it also means mobilising to counter the far right, should they try to march in any local communities. And providing organised stewarding to defend counter-demos against attempts by the far right or even sometimes the police to attack them. And housing campaigners have beaten private developers in Leeds, is that right? That is right. So the Tenants and Residents Association in Little London, which is a working class estate in Leeds, pushed back a private mega block planned for their green space. The Socialist Party in Leeds has been campaigning alongside them and Steve Skinner, the chair of the Tenants and Residents Association, told us that Little London is a densely populated estate with few facilities, particularly green space where people can relax and children can play. Wherever you go, you see children trying to play games on tiny stretches of land or in corridors. And he also told us that we've petitioned, lobbied councillors, held packed meetings and protest events. The best thing about the campaigning work is that it's brought people together from so many different backgrounds. Black, white, Kurdish, East European. The developers have withdrawn for the moment after campaigners soundly defeated them at a council planning committee. But the council should stop allowing big developers to cram us into sardine tins for private profit. Councils should begin a mass programme to build council homes for all, that's what the Socialist Party says, and also implement democratic rent controls in the private sector. Jeremy Corbyn should support this. He should also move to nationalise the land and the big developers so that housing and public space could be planned by workers and residents to meet the needs of communities, not the capitalists. Thanks, James. Thank you, Scott. We want you to send us recordings from picket lines and campaigns and reports of your activity. We also want your questions, comments and ideas for future episodes. Email socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk Socialism the podcast of course has no wealthy backers. We survive thanks to the financial support of ordinary working class and young people. And we're proud of the political independence that gives us. If you like what you hear, help us take the fight to big business. You can make a regular or one-off donation at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash donate. And help us spread the word by giving us a five-star review and subscribing so you don't miss out. You can read more about what we think at socialistparty.org.uk and of course as ever if you agree, join the socialists. Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party. This week we heard from Kevin Parslow, speaking to James Ivans, along with me, Scott Jones. Till next time, solidarity.